Welcome to Discomfort Zone, a podcast that explores the leadership journey. We are a group of women from all corners of the globe who are avidly excited by the leadership journeys of women around the world. We're coming together to have conversations about what it means to be a leader, who can be a leader, exploring what the leadership self-growth journey feels like, delving into how emotions can empower leaders, exploring diversity in leadership and more. No matter who you are or where you're based, we welcome you to join us on the leadership journey. everyone and welcome to the final episode of the Discomfort Zone special series on the HB5 Virtual Voyage. Today we'll be speaking about leading from the heart, what it takes to lead in such a complex issue as climate change. Joining us today we have... Hi, I'm Ilary Harris and I am living in Vancouver, Canada, but from Wales originally and I am a environmental and geoscience specialist. I'm Juliana Kadar. I'm at Macquarie University and from the United States originally, and I'm a shark movement ecologist. Hi, I'm Nirvani Devcharan, based in Cape Town, South Africa. I work in information technology. Hi, I'm Anna Colucci, originally from Italy, but based in Germany. I'm a biologist and environmental manager, but I currently work in corporate sustainability as a transformation manager. Hi, I'm Rebecca Wade. I'm based in Dundee in Eastern Scotland in the UK, and I'm an academic. I'm a senior lecturer in environmental science at Abertay University. Hi, my name is Paula Silva. I'm a hydraulic engineer. I specialize in integrated water sources management. I am originally from Mexico, and I work for Jacobs, a global engineering firm, and I'm passionate about providing technical support to address complex water planning challenges. Hi, I'm Roshni Sharma. I'm a special scientist living in Sydney, Australia, passionate about sustainability and working together with government, academia and industry to create better outcomes for the future of the Australian geospatial industry. So here we are on part two of this extra special episode where we are looking at leading from the heart climate change as a discomfort zone. In regards to animal species, do we have a moral obligation to address changing habitat due to climate change and habitat loss caused by human consumption? Thank you very much for the question. I think it's a, it's a question to which we could answer in different ways. My reflection would go into turning ethical and moral obligation reflection into something different. I believe that Often when we talk about ethical and moral obligation, it comes from a vision of the world where human beings pose themselves into a superior position. So being responsible for other species and missing out the fact that we are all very much interconnected. It's not part of my job. I'm not an ecologist or an animal scientist, but since I was young, I've always been attracted to understanding what are the relationships and uh, how nature depends on us and uh, we depend on nature. So I believe that at the point where we are heading, the moral obligation that we have more than towards nature is towards us 
in finding how much we are related to nature and how much we depend. So the destruction and the level of even extinction that we are reaching right now on any type of animal species and at the, every level of ecosystem that we're reaching is going to hit on us much harder than we think. So the moral obligation that I would like to advance in this reflection is the one that we have to our own species. I know that it's a strong statement, but tigers, elephants, even you know, all the insects are going to survive or recreate at some point with evolution. The question is, are we going to survive all of this? I really like the way that you frame that, Anna, and I have similar but different thoughts on it. I think that, yes, absolutely, that we do have a moral or ethical obligation to address the changing habitats and the destruction that we are creating in the world and on habitats and ecology. I don't feel that it's morally an acceptable thing for us to be destroying habitats worldwide and for there not to be any repercussions for that. But what you were saying in how we should be thinking about it as well as a moral obligation to ourselves as humans. And I think that's a really um, productive way of thinking about it and a really positive way of thinking about it. I think in a little bit more of a negative light in that turning it around and how it can benefit humans is the only way that we're going to get humans to to act. And I like the way that actually you frame it a little bit better than I do and that it's a lot more of a constructive approach than, (laughs) than my attitude where, well... If we don't try and turn this around for humans and how it can actually benefit humans and to highlight how it's hampering human development and and our future, then we're not going to get humans to actually act on it. I agree that it's something really important to to highlight that it's not just about elephants or it's not just about orangutans or it's not just about sharks, that we're all interconnected and that if these different species and these different environments and habitats continue to suffer then there's inherently going to be a knock-on effect for humans and human development and the future of the human race like you said we have a moral obligation to ourselves as well to act hi this is paula it seems like we are struggling a little bit with the moral and ethical word in the question and that is in my case because i think that when you talk about a moral thing is when you have to decide either or, right? And I believe that we're very far from that. I think that we're making wrong choices in the way that we manage our resources. So there is a lot of waste. There is a lot of disconnection. So there are very few cases in which you say, okay, we have to choose between surviving ourselves or the other species. It's more about how we become more effective and the level of consumption becomes the actual level that we need, right? I mean, there is a lot of waste and there is a lot of imbalance in terms of, you know, one side of the world, there is a waste of food and the other, there is anything. And that is, I think, the key issue. And and maybe that is where Anna is connecting the moral responsibility with our own species, because I think that is what is driving a situation where we are damaging our environment, because We're not taking care of the whole human race as a whole, you know, like with all the disparities that we have in terms of opportunities and income and access to food and the things that are basic and every human should have. So I I think that the 
argument around humans doing these changes for humans is something that has to come first because that's something that will drive everything forward, definitely. From the moral and ethical point of view, I want to introduce something else here about the animals and nature and all of these living systems having their own intrinsic value. So looking at them as having value within themselves apart from the human world. And I think one of the arguments that's really stuck with me over the years is the last man argument, which is, you know, also I think should be known as the last woman on earth argument. And um, it's really a great thought to consider because it, it just involves the last person on earth basically eliminating all of the living systems around and just using everything up, you know, killing all of the koalas or walking around and using all of the things that are available. And then that's okay from an anthropomorphic point of view, from like a human-centered point of view, but it's not okay if you're also thinking about the intrinsic value of nature. So, you know, it having the extreme point of view is saying it, it has a right to exist on its own apart from humans. And do we have a moral and ethical obligation to ensure that it has the right to continue on apart from ourselves? And, and you know, does our existence here, if we're not at the top of this triangle presiding over everything in nature and we're actually at the center of this circle as a part of it, then do we actually consider ourselves as equals or as a part of the system? And does that come into our morals to consider that? This is Nirvani. I totally agree with everything everyone said. And I think we definitely have a moral and ethical obligation to protect the ecosystem. It's really very delicate. The interdependencies, like Anna's alluded to, is quite delicate. And we need to make sure if we are supposedly at the top of this triangle and maybe not in the middle, we're needing to manage that ecosystem a lot better. And I maybe just want to use a little example from South Africa with the Big Five game, which is what South Africa was known for for a long time. And I think just for that fact, though, there's been a number of people, tourists coming to see it, but then also there's been this whole people could come and hunt these big five. And the sad reality is now that we've seen diminishing numbers of these animals. And it's really because of the way we as humans have decided to exploit this has become a, a trophy for us, you know, to say I've shot a rhinoceros or a leopard or whatever else. Um, and, you know, instead of appreciating the beauty of the animals and living together with them or finding, making that ecosystem work, we actually are going down a road where we're starting to cause extinction of these animals. And it's really sad. I mean, in South Africa at the moment, the rhinoceros is one of the most hunted animals. And it is absolutely tragic when you see these huge animals have been killed just to have the ivory or their tusks taken or whatever. It's, it's really sad. And I think somehow, you know, we are destroying the environment. We are destroying the habitat of the animals. And also we've put these animals in game ranges and safaris or where people can go and look at them, but we're changing their habitat and that's not their natural environment that they live in. And some of the game farms, you can actually see that these animals don't live there naturally and the animal conservationists try to protect the rights of these animals as well. And you hear, you know, action being taken, but we really need to manage and control that and to reiterate that 
it is a moral and ethical right of us or an obligation from us to make sure that we do protect this delicate ecosystem. Hi, it's Rebecca here. So I've been really interested in this discussion, actually, I think partly because it's so difficult in a way, because it's ranged from this anthropocentric idea of just doing things because they're beneficial to humans. But that also raised thoughts for me that there's so many elements of ecology and ecosystems whereby we get indirect benefits. So the direct benefits that we might get that we perceive There's so, so many more that we don't necessarily perceive that we still benefit from because of this rich web of ecology, because of every little ant and every large predator and the way in which they interact with our vegetative systems and our marine systems and our freshwater systems. And so this really intricate web of our biodiversity, our ecosystem, on which we just so centrally defend, really, I think it's not that we have to think about a moral responsibility. I think that it's in a way, it's about surviving the planet, the planet surviving. If we are the last woman on the planet or the last man on the planet, then probably the planet will go on. And it's that biosphere, it's that ecosystem that supports all of us. And and even if we don't perceive specific benefits from those different species or their habitats, I think that it's it's an obligation. We have a moral obligation to those habitats and to the planet, regardless of whether or not we see a direct benefit that comes from them. So I guess that was one thing. And another reflection that I had while I was thinking was that for many, many years, people have been you know, conserving, whether it be large game or an example that I always think of in the UK is the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. It was set up in the Victorian era when some people, women, became incensed that birds were being slaughtered so that pretty feathers could go on hats for fashion. And egrets and birds of paradise um, were basically being, their individual bodies of those species were being damaged and their habitats and, and their livelihoods were being damaged because people wanted to have these fashionable items. And that's how one of the most influential charitable, you know, wildlife charitable organizations in the UK and, and part of BirdLife International became set up. And just as we have organizations that don't want to have um, maybe leather or fur products just for fashion, you know, just as we have many, many or other organizations, whether it be, you know, the Worldwide Fund for Nature or, you know, we could, we could mention a lot of, a lot of different charities that kind of capture that feeling that many, many people have that they want to try and preserve not just the species, but the habitats and the planet for those uh, species that are not homo sapiens, that are not humans. Um, and it, it may be so that we can appreciate that they exist for their intrinsic value, as Juliana, I think, was saying, or it may be that we want to be able to go and view them in their habitat and get that kind of you know, pleasure of being able to see them and know that they're still around on the planet. So those were just a couple of thoughts that came up while everyone else was saying really good, interesting things about our moral responsibility to, to other species. Anna here. I have to say that I love this discussion. I think the question is very interesting because it can beautifully be taken from so many angles. What I wanted to add is that uh, I love the concept of the nature and the, this loss of perception of connection. So the concept that Rebecca shared, rich web of ecosystem that we have and uh, 
how it feels like humans feels always superior level compared to other animals. So I didn't like this idea of moral obligation, like, you know, a parent being morally obligated to protect the children because they, in the end, animals can live on their own. Uh, what made me reflect listening to all of you is how much I actually changed, mostly maybe in the last five, seven years. I personally consider myself a very empathic and emotional person, but my job and uh, having to communicate this concept to people brought me also to embrace a different type of communication, a dip different type of angle on taking this. Because I remember, you know, when I was 23, crying over the dolphins being slaughtered in Japan, I used to really have my heartbroken literally and I think my words cannot describe how I felt about it seeing the Great Barrier Reef bleaching it was heartbreaking but I realized that people don't get that so there is also unfortunately this need of changing the way that we communicate this and I say unfortunately because we need to again put in the end humans as in this level where you know, if you say, oh, humans are going to die if we don't have bees anymore, or, you know, sharks are <laughs> a key uh, element of our ecosystem. So unfortunately, I think that we have to frame this moral obligation as humans, otherwise we are going to perish. I'd just like to add, it's about the different levels of uh, ethics and, and morality when it comes to the driver for the consumption of a human. I mean, I think it's, it might be different talking about consuming a bird for fashion than consuming a bird for feeding, or depending on whether you have access to something else and it's a choice for you to have a greater impact when you can avoid it. So it creates a very complex situation and also brings the cultural and the individual conditions. We all agree on the need of feeling part and having that connection with the environment and protecting in a day-to-day -day basis is the challenge because we need to make decisions every day as consumers in this world. And sometimes you do have information, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have a choice, sometimes you don't. So it's very complex situations. I think that is precisely some of the challenges that we all face as individuals and in general the public that is less informed they agree okay yes we want to do something yes I don't want to damage the earth or the environment but I don't know how or what I don't have a choice this is a really great discussion and I think going off of both what Anna and Paula have said now really is so complex and and like you said Paula that the issues with what people need and what they're actually going after is a large part of it. I think what's happening in the world now is kind of this shift. So we all feel these things, like Anna has said, about the environment and moving toward, you know, protecting these things because of the value that we see in them. Yet we realize how complex the outside world is, like Paula said as well, and, and how people need these things and how we, we also have these very like concrete and worldly necessities. And what's exciting now is if we're on looking at the positive side of things that are happening in the world today, is how people are starting to learn to move outside of themselves. And they're starting to consider, okay, so either 
we need to make these changes because the world cannot survive them and we cannot survive them or parts of the world will survive them that we don't fully eliminate or affect in some way because of habitat loss or something. But then this seems like kind of a transition. This seems like a step in the right direction of more people learning to embrace that emotion or have that connection with nature and biodiversity and these systems of, yes, they may have some value outside of the value that they have to us, or they may deserve to exist on their own. And the more people People that connect with these emotions or have these experiences outside in nature or with animals or whatever appeals to them is really beneficial for all of these things. And speaking on a personal note as well, from the shark research and from getting to know these animals or any of us that works with something that people don't have a lot of contact with, not a lot of direct contact with, it's hard to explain and it's hard to get people to empathize. And Sharks have been a huge challenge for me because I love them and they're beautiful and, you know, they have all of these amazing features. And then every single time or most all of the time I have a conversation with anyone, that's not what I come into contact with. That's not what I meet in person. So convincing doesn't work. We know that. I think that, you know, appealing to some type of emotional side is something that works and something that I have to address when I'm talking about sharks is the fear that people feel first. And that's a very somber note for me to introduce an animal that I love. I'm always faced with this kind of conflicting side of things and trying to work toward a better opinion of the public and trying to push that forward because that connection and that knowledge and that something is going to push forward the, the right actions that the public needs to do. Just following on from that, thinking about connecting humans with animals and ecosystems and thinking about urban spaces. Like I grew up in rural Wales. I spent a lot of my time in my grandma's garden or the fields behind our house and playing with worms or like hanging out with the horses and seeing the birds and butterflies and stuff. Now I live in Vancouver in a more urban setting and I'm very conscious that a lot of people, a lot of children that grow up in urban spaces don't have that connection with animals and ecosystems and so they grow up without a similar sort of connection to them. That can be changed I think and I've been seeing a lot of things recently and reading a lot of things about creating more green spaces in urban areas, really great uh, innovative solutions like creating green walls along highways rather than just concrete walls to encourage biodiversity or big sky rise um, apartment buildings having lots of vegetation on the balconies or on the roofs and having roof gardens that have got actually grass and trees and everything on them. Bringing that into urban life and getting the, the general public in urban settings to connect a little bit more with nature, I think will help, hopefully, in making them feel this moral and ethical obligation towards biodiversity. Because like a few of you were saying, there's a disconnect right now. And that, I think, needs to be changed. Hi, it's Rebecca here. So I really liked what um, Ellery was just saying there because, and also Juliana, thank you so much, because I think it nicely brings together the idea that we are coming together around a climate issue 
um, part of the reason for this podcast is that we're talking about climate change. And one of the ways in which we can see a big change, a transformation, a step change is that, you know, globally, people are starting to address the climate challenge. Even in the last couple of weeks since we last spoke together for our first recording, there have been so many more pledges by so many more governments, by so many more companies and organisations about reducing emissions to try and halt or slow the impacts of climate change. And it will be through measures like nature-based solutions and green infrastructure and some of those solutions that Aleri was alluding to just now. And I think one thing that we could maybe do to help this debate that we've just had or this conversation that we've just had around other species is making sure that that biodiversity crisis is absolutely fully interlocked with the climate crisis and the solutions are fully interlocked as well. So that if we have approaches and solutions which enable us to address the climate crisis, which is being, I would say, taken on board wholesale almost by nations, by organisations, by states, by private industry. It really is getting mainstream that that has to not just be a technological emissions solution. It needs to be a nature-based, a nature-intertwined, interacted solution, whereby the findings of the IPBES report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, is linked to the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that those solutions and those COPs, the Conference of the Parties for Climate Change and for Biodiversity, that their pledges and their solutions and their targets really come together to enable those joined up solutions. So actually, I think it's lovely that we talked through all of those issues and then we started to come to some of those ways in which the moral obligation around species that are not human and the reason for us being together at all around climate actually can maybe come together really nicely in this part of our discussion. So thank you, everyone, for leading us here. I think that's really good. I think that leads us beautifully on to our next question, which is moving slightly from what governments and organisations are doing to the individual level. So as people who live on this earth who care about nature and the interconnected web of species and natural processes, what are some of the actions or behaviours that you do personally towards minimising the effect of climate change? So this is Nirvani. I just wanted to maybe reflect on Cape Town a few years ago. So it'll be three years in January. We actually went through a really bad drought and there was talk of day zero, which was frightfully scary. We had known it was coming for three years before that. There was just warnings being given, but nothing substantial. And the only thing that we were experiencing was higher tariffs for water, but not much more than that. And water restrictions, you know, in terms of watering your gardens and things like that. So when we actually had a countdown to day zero, it was really so scary. It was talks of water tankers coming in, needing to stand in queues. You couldn't get bottled water in the stores. It we had bottled water being flown in from the rest of the country. And for me, I think those few months, there was this uncertainty as to whether we were going to hit day zero, where we're not going to have the rains. What did that mean for us? And to the extent that on a personal level, I was considering relocating to another city <laughs> only because I could. Because <laughs> um, I had family elsewhere that I could take my son and gonna tell my husband I'm leaving him. He's on his own. But we had to change our behaviors at home substantively. And I think, you know, 
something that you don't even realize is how much of water that you use even just to cook food, you know, because I was now cooking food with bottled water, just needing to preserve the water because I couldn't get access to bottled water. I needed to be careful with how I used it. So you start rethinking your usage on everything, you know, my cup, I was reusing my cup multiple times before I washed it just to preserve water. And many homes now in Cape Town have these big tanks. They're from a brand called Jojo Tanks. I don't know if you know them in the rest of the world, but pretty much people use them as grey water to catch rainwater. So they connect uh, the gutters into these tanks and we never had them. We now have two 5,000 litres of these. We've got them connected up into our homes and we use it for the bathrooms and for putting water into the garden. We had spent hundreds of dollars in using fresh water to water our gardens, our lawn. And needless to say, during that drought, there was, everything was dry and um, we had no lawn and it was pretty sad. So you rethink your entire gardening as well. So now I have all these succulent plants and I'm not a gardener, so I had to learn about these things. But plants that you don't need a lot of water for, you know, we got into the habit of having a bowl under the sink, a dish, so that when we washed our hands, we would use that water to put into the garden, onto the flowers or the roses. And that habit has carried on. So luckily, day zero didn't happen. We got really close to it. I think it really frightened us a lot. We were paying tariffs that went through the roof in terms of the amount we were paying for water. But, you know, I changed how I was cooking, the amount of water I was using in cooking, amount of water you'd use to shower and, you know, putting devices in to limit the flow of shower, low pressure, shower heads, low pressure taps. It was end to end. We had to rethink our entire way of just water consumption, but then also just everything else around how do your pets have water and you can't get access to bottled water even. It is a reality check, but there's some of the changes that we had to make on a personal level and it's become a way of it's a habit now, you know, it's just um, been very, very cautious. And that's only just on the water side. There's a few other things that we've done, but I just wanted to reflect on the water side of things. So I just um, want to say that I'm really happy about the example Danny brought up because that is music to my ears. I am a water resources specialist. So that is precisely the message that I was trying to give earlier about the role that consumption plays in taking care of the environment and is a part of the equation as important. So if you consume less, then the, the smaller the impact is, regardless of, I mean, that is the two ways that you can balance the equation. So the more you know about how the system conveys water to your home, the energy that is involved, where the water is coming from, if it's from the surface, if it's from the ground or the more you know about it, the more you appreciate that you have that service and, and you take care of it more, right? As become more scarce. So one of the actions that I'm practicing or behaviors more than actions is just be conscious about the consumptions that I make. If it's something that I can be consuming less or substitute, or if it's just if I need it. And in that regard, this uh, pandemic situation has been a great opportunity for everybody to reflect on our consumptions because having less opportunity to access to goods and, and things like that, then you really think twice about what you are consuming. So that's one. And um, 
uh, very specific actions that I've taken towards reducing the effect of climate change is actually to join this program, the Homeward Bound. That, I think, is the most important action I've ever taken on this because I'm not a climate change specialist. I mean, I do study the impact of climate change on water supply projections. So I, it's part of my input, the models that we develop. But I'm not an activist. I don't really do something beyond that to actually, I work more on mitigation than reduction on the effects. So that has been my most important step or action, joining this group, this program, because I really want to do more. And I think we can do it together better than individually. Anna here. I love this question and I want to answer with real examples of things because often lack of real actions that they can make. I think both Nirvani and Paula made really, really beautiful examples on consumption and I loved the one on water hearing your story. Nirvani made me on one side shiver because I have no idea what it must feel like to be in a situation like this on the other side made me very sad thinking that to change behaviors you really need to reach almost you know the day zero so to be threatened again with your existence or your life i think i've started since australia has been my mind-blowing moment basically five years ago started learning and embracing a lot of behaviors reducing consumption is the key to everything i started with food It's a very delicate and very personal choice. So everything that I'm going to say now, it's something that I do for myself to align on how I feel. And I personally also tried to embrace a way of living that doesn't look to what other people do, because I think that it's uh, wrong to kind of teach people. I'm happy to have conversation about it, but uh, I would never impose my perspective onto others. On the diet, I would say the reducing drastically meat and fish consumption then in terms of consumption i don't buy any new clothes anymore now i reached that level i buy basically almost secondhand or i receive from my aunties they are very generous so i'm very happy to have fancy aunties giving me clothes i recently finally in my home shifted to green electricity that's something that I think it's very easy to do, has great impact and inputs to the market. And a lot of people don't consider that. And I'm actually in Germany paying much less than with normal electricity provider. Here in Germany, I can bike, which makes me very happy because in Italy, I cannot do that because it's much too dangerous. And uh, so transportation wise, I would say that I try to bike the most. Before COVID, I also tried to move much more around with the train, but unfortunately now they didn't restore them yet. So I had to go with the flights. When I fly, I try to compensate by planting trees. That's probably more like my sad consolation to that. But I think that my biggest challenge, that it's my personal challenge, is to eliminate plastics and reduce my waste production as much as possible. I reached a target that I produce less than 30 well I, I don't know it sounds a lot but less than 30 liters of mixed waste in every two weeks so it's two bags per month and with plastic waste I have basically learned to buy everything unbulked apart from the cheese that I eat that's the only steel package thing that I have but uh, yeah those are some examples 
I really loved hearing those stories and I guess I'm going to build on what Anna was saying. I think a really good place to start and a place that I have gone to many times, maybe once a year, is to go online to a carbon footprint calculator and they'll ask certain questions about how you go about your life and then you'll come out with your carbon footprint of however much the O2 that you emit per year and what the average is for your country and like how you really need to be reducing and like the areas in your life where your carbon emissions are really high and how you can mitigate for that. So that's a really good place to start. I do that like once a year to see how how I'm doing. <laughs> so I do lots of things in my day-to-day life to minimize my greenhouse gas emissions. One of them is switching things off, like switching electronics off if they're on standby, like my TV, that needs to be unplugged. And it seems really silly because like, if you think, oh, you know, it's really not draining that much electricity, but if you think of everything that's in your house and everything that's in everyone else's house all over the world, that's actually altogether draining quite a lot of energy. I can see where people think that, oh, if I do it, it doesn't make much of a difference. But if you do it and every single other person does it, that's huge, really huge. So don't think that, you know, switching off your TV isn't worthwhile because it is. (laughs) Flights. Flights is a massive thing for me. So because, you know, I live in Canada now, but I'm from the UK and I want to go home and see my family. I want to go home and see my grandma. (laughs) She's the best thing ever. And Skype just doesn't cut the mustard all the time. So I want to go and see her. And so I fly home once every year or two. Or, you know, if family members are ill, I've got to fly home. And so that is the biggest carbon emission by far in my life. And when I, whenever I look at my carbon footprint, no matter what I do in my day-to-day life, flights just blows it out of the water. The only thing I can do, like I'll try and reduce my flights as much as possible. I'm going to go skiing in Rossland, the other side of BC. I'm going to drive with some people in the car with me rather than us going on a flight. That's going to make it a bit better. Or when I lived in the Alps, I lived in the ski resort in the Alps. Most people that fly over there, to live there for the season they'll fly and I made the point of getting the train which was it was a big deal when you got all your stuff with you for like the next six months or however long when you snowboard and everything and it was you have to sacrifice your comfort but it's worth it I think and you have to think of it in the bigger picture rather than just for convenience sake that flight is just more convenient and when you can get the train or get a ferry rather than fly Other things that I do, the whole reduce, reuse, recycle that has been mentioned. So firstly, reduce, reduce the things that you use. If you don't need it, don't buy it. If you don't need it, don't use it. If you don't, if you don't need a full kettle, just put a cup's worth in. Reuse. I also, like Anna was saying, I also don't buy many new clothes. I don't buy much new furniture. My TV is secondhand. Almost everything in my house right now is secondhand, apart from thrift stores or Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or eBay. You can get some really great stuff for free. Some people just want to get rid of stuff and can't be bothered to sell it. So they get it for free. It's great. Clothes swaps as well with your friends is I get a lot of my clothes from clothes swaps. Then once you've reduced, you've reused, then you go to the recycling. I try to buy as little plastic as possible. I'm sure I could do a lot more in that department, but um, I do try. And I I definitely try and recycle as much things as possible. Like even soft plastics. Back in the UK, I remember that they weren't recyclable. But it turns out they are recyclable. It's just that you have to find the place that will accept them. And in Canada, I found a place that will accept them. And so I take 
and take my uh, soft plastics to be recycled. So sometimes it does involve a little bit of effort in your part, but once you start doing it, it just becomes second nature. And things as well, like, you know, the plastic straw thing that is, I think is like quite global these days, you know, whenever I'm at McDonald's, no straw, thank you, no straw. Uh, and I do go to McDonald's far more often than I should admit. <laughs> it's got the best Diet Coke in the world and I'm a Diet Coke fiend. <laughs> so metal straws and things like that. And it, it is little things, but these little things, they spread into the rest of your life. You start not using a plastic straw, then you start not using a plastic bag. And then you start not wanting to use um, plastic bags for your fruit and vegetables and you get reusable bags instead. And it does start to overtake the rest of your life when you really think about it. Oh, yeah. For ladies out there, you know, if you think about how many tampons or sanitary towels you use every month, well, you can you cannot do that and you can get a diva cup rather than, you know, however many you use um, every cycle you use one diva cup for 10 years and that's amazing. Or there's quite a lot of brands of uh, underwear now that you can use instead of the sanitary towels. So lots of, lots of different tips like that. Just things you can do in your day-to-day life. Um, And in BC as well, pretty much all of the electricity is hydropower, which is great. So I don't really have to think about it. I don't even have to think about changing my, um, my supplier. It's just, it's all hydropower anyway. With that in mind, then, like getting an electric vehicle is uh, a lot more of a sustainable option. Like in the UK, when my electric was not renewable, getting an electric car, not going to help the situation too well because it's charging the car with non-renewables. So there's things to think about all around where your electricity is coming from, as Anna was saying. Oh, the one other thing as well is that, okay, there's these little things you can do in your day-to-day life, but politically you can support parties that are a lot more committed to climate change And we just saw this year that, you know, China uh, decided to commit to the zero emissions by, I think it was 2050. And then Japan jumped on board, like not that long after. And so once we start this competition between countries and nations to become net zero, carbon zero, we can influence that individually without political choices. So it's Rebecca here. And I just, I'm so inspired by what everyone else has said from the water example in South Africa through ideas around consumption generally, uh, you know, the recycling hierarchy, the, the reduce, reuse, recycle, actions and behaviours. I mean, my personal actions, I reduce, I reuse and I recycle wherever possible, but I'm sure I could do better. But I'm on that track where I'm trying to do it and I think about it often. And so I think I can do better. I switch things off. <laughs> but I could probably switch more things off more often. I try to delete emails because I know that even the amount of cloud space that we take up with our electronic footprint. So yeah, get rid of your electronic footprint as well as you know your digital, your cloud space, because all of that takes up energy to, to conserve all of that. So there's all of that stuff. And I cycle to work. I cycle commute because I love it. It's good for me. I just don't even have the time to go to the gym or or want to pay the money to go to the gym. But I have to get to work. Well, not so much in 2020, but um, I have to get to work. So I go on my bicycle and, and then I tell my students when I arrive at university, they can normally tell I've just arrived on my bicycle. So, <laughs> so um, it becomes then, you know, a, a seen behavior. It's not a hidden sustainable behavior. It's one that's apparent and that I'm I love and I'm proud of and I am happy to share. So 
I try to encourage other people about how much benefit I get from it. Um, and then hopefully that maybe that some of the, my actions become behaviors for other people as well. Um, so definitely the cycling, definitely thinking about switching things off, definitely reducing plastic, definitely recycling everything I can recycle and using reusable bags and all of that kind of stuff. And I've changed to a green energy tariff recently as well. So I'm with you there, Anna. I've uh, just done that recently. We get quite a lot of our Scottish electricity from renewables as well, but like Ellery, but uh, maybe not all of it. And I want to go with a company that guarantees that I get all of mine from a renewable sources. So we're doing that. But that comment about voting and having a voice, that's, I think, the thing I wanted to finish on, because one of the things I do try and do is I try and have conversations a conversation with the guy that's managing the park or the guy that's delivering my letters or, you know, the woman I sit next to on the bus or, you know, my students in class or my colleagues or just random strangers. I talk to most people. And so I think that, you know, having conversations and not being pushy or telling people what to do, but just making it really normal to talk about sustainable actions, making it really normal to have conversations with people about, or just mentioning out loud, oh, isn't that great? Because that's really improving sustainability or that pocket park or that little rain garden, that's just doing so many great things for us and we don't even realize. And so those bits and pieces of knowledge, whether it's about green infrastructure or, you know, I don't know, electric buses, whatever it might be, then just making sure that I pick up those things that I notice that are good and going in the right direction from my perspective and just trying to have a conversation about that. But then also voting for the people that are going to keep those policies going in the right direction and writing to the council or to the company or to whomever I think is doing a really good job and making sure they get, you know, positive reinforcement for those actions that they're taking so yeah lots and lots of personal and relatively small individual actions but also some of those outward behaviors as well where I hope they might be influencing um, and just normalizing some of those actions and I'm, I've been vegetarian for a really long time and so that's not something that I've changed recently but yeah I, I think that I'm more and more pleased that I'm not making as much of an impact there. I do have dairy though, and I know that that's an impact. And so there's still a ways I could go. So I think we should be really proud of the small things that we do. And they're not all small. As Larry said, if you add them all together, they're big, they're huge, they're massive, they're world changing, but we could probably all do a bit better as well. I really liked Paula's comment earlier about having the choice and having the agency and the availability to make those decisions. And I feel quite privileged in that I do have the choice and I can make a choice. Another thing that I've been doing is trying to support people who are helping people that have less choice to make better and more sustainable decisions. So trying to then roll that out to be more equitable and just, and the transition includes everybody and not just those who have got the luxury of making the choice. So I've kind of got a little bit off my individual actions, but. I guess it's my behaviors as well. So there's so much we could do and it doesn't have to be that hard. We just need to normalize it. I think that's lovely, Rebecca. And I, I think listening to all of the positivity you bring to that discussion changes the whole lens, you know, and 
us focusing on our individual choices is something that's really important. And I love the way that Anna, you said it earlier, how you wouldn't want to push your perspective on anyone else. And you're doing these things for yourself because they align with your values. And that's something that drives so many of us. But when Rebecca, you reframe it in this really positive reinforcement type of way and normalizing way, I think that's really powerful. And for me, the the individual actions center around, I think, like activism in a way, like, and that's something that I'm just working on now and I'm trying to step into. And earlier in Homeward Bound, when we started talking about activism, I was a bit uncomfortable by it. It really pushed me outside of outside of the zone. And through those conversations, I was inspired to look up local communities and organizations. So in Australia here, like the Wilderness Society, I think that having these conversations and normalizing them has encouraged me to step out and have these conversations with friends and family and people in public as well. And it's something that uh, is really powerful, you know, and just like how turning off your TV at night or or doing these little things, you know, these little conversations gain mass. And I can feel that in the community around me. And I don't know how much impact I'm making individually, but it's empowering me at least individually, because I feel this momentum and this weight behind what my individual actions are doing and how I can move that forwards. It also goes a long way in connecting you with others who feel the weight of the situation because sometimes it is very heavy and it does bring in that really powerful aspect of working as a collective. And when we reach the critical mass as a, as a population, you know, which is something we're all trying to do through our individual actions, then we can go such a long way that way. And that's, it's nice to know that for me. Thank you so much, Juliana. That was really, really powerful. And also Rebecca, everyone, I have to say, I would have to list everyone. As a closing note, I think I would really like to say kind of a call to action. We really need to start from somewhere. I often talk to people and they say, but where do I start? How do you do everything? Or And there is this sense of being overwhelmed, which either blocks you completely or pushes you to blame others. So I often have, you know, people pointing the finger at me and saying, oh, that's not enough. Or if business do this or that. So trying to not look into individual impacts. But If there is something that we learned in this podcast is that climate change is real, is happening. And uh, not that we had a doubt about that before, but uh, strengthen this idea. But I feel like we should really stop blaming each other. Also, you know, at the bigger global level, stop this discussion on who should start where. But let's start doing something. What are you going to do today? 